Welcome to another episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. So glad you're here. Hey, how'd you find us? Did you click on the link on Syracuse.com and you're listening on SoundCloud? Awesome. Did you find us on social media? That's great as well. Here's a terrific way to get this podcast sent right to you, and you don't even have to think about it. New episodes sent your way whenever we do. Subscribe, either in iTunes or Google Play. Just search Syracuse Sports Podcast, hit that subscribe button once, and we will deliver you a brand new episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast when it is ready. You picked a good one to hang out with us today, the legendary sportscaster and Syracuse alum who's won seemingly every award you can get, but this one takes the cake. Next month, Bob will officially become a Baseball Hall of Famer, the 2018 recipient of the Ford Frick Award. I caught up with Bob recently to walk down memory lane, discuss his days in Syracuse, and you won't want to miss the Slapshot-inspired story when Bob was the play-by-play voice of the Syracuse Blazers. Also today, we're going to shine a spotlight on a couple hidden gems in central New York for summer sports. You know certainly about the Syracuse Chiefs and the Auburn Double Days, or maybe you want to take a drive down the road to Binghamton to see Tim Tebow and the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. But do you know about the Syracuse Salty Cats, for example? We'll tell you all about that coming up. But first, Brianna Bearsall. It seems like we've done a lot of empowering women things going on this year with the Me Too campaign and and going off of that. And I think that I've really kind of opened myself up to the world as far as, you know, the things I've gone through in my life. This is another part. You just, you know, take off the robe and, and show everything else. It's really been amazing to see the transformation of Brianna Stewart before our very eyes. The woman who may go down is perhaps the most accomplished athlete in the history of Central New York, recently bared it all for ESPN's body issue. Stewie has already established herself as one of the best basketball players in the world, but she's going down a new path, taking a stance on several social issues. Many of you certainly remember the Me Too essay that she put out back in October, chronicling sexual abuse when she was young. Her decision to pose nude an ESPN's body issue, along with athletes like Saquon Barkley, Jerry Rice, and Greg Norman, has certainly put Brianna in a whole new spotlight. It was distressing, albeit predictable, to see how some people reacted to Brianna posing nude, including many comments here on Syracuse.com. Posing nude is going to open you up to certain forms of criticism. But I would only ask before you hit send on that comment that you listen to why Brianna did it. And I got a sense when Brianna was a guest on this very podcast back in late March that she was ready to speak out even more and do some pretty bold things to bring attention to the causes she believes in away from the basketball court. 50% of the people like what we say, 50% of the people don't, but it doesn't matter. But it's at like, the same time, do you feel you're making some progress? Oh, people def- are, yeah, are, yeah. are kind of accepting it more like, look, you know, like you said, they live in this world too. They're going to speak out about right. it. And if you don't like it, you know, you have various ways to ignore it. Right. But you're, you're also inspiring another mm-hmm. generation. This, I'm really struck. I'm not that old. Brianna, I'm, I'm only 39, but I'm struck by your generation and my daughter's yeah. generation. My daughter's 11. How wired in they are and mm-hmm. how aware they are of social yeah. issues and using and not being afraid to speak up. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's people like you and, and the athletes that are out there that are, are telling them it's okay to do that. Yeah. It's okay to, to care about this world, no and matter I, what your, your your status. Yeah, is. and I think it's you know, it's it's kind of sad. I was talking to my mom the other day, like in light of so many events that have happened in this country in the past few years, like we were in New York for St. Pat- Patrick's Day. We, I wasn't going to New York for St. Patrick's Day, but it just happened to be the same weekend. Um, and it's like, 
you know, I'm walking down the street, and I'm like, you know what? I have to, like, be a little bit more on edge when there's millions of people here to watch the parade and that type of thing. Like, you have to think about this stuff now. So it's like, yeah, I'm a great basketball player, but, yeah, I'm still thinking about the same thing as everybody else. Um, and I think that's just how you go about it, you know? Not going to shut up and dribble. Sorry, Laura. Right, We're not going to shut up and dribble here. Um, so back in October, you, you put out your article on the Players' Tribune. Right. And it's interesting because at that time, you were in China. Yeah. Now, we're a connected world for your social media and everything, but how did you gauge the reaction to that being you know, on the other side mm-hmm. of the world? What was it like to, to see that? Or did, did you experience it at all because of that? No, I, I, um, I definitely experienced the reaction. And, you know, doing it in China, I wouldn't say it was like pre-planned, but it was kind of like, okay, in light of all the, the Me Too things, you know, I have a story and I want to put it out there. And just it was just about finding the time that was right to do that. And um, following Michaela Maroney and that type of thing, I was like, you know what? My story will help people too. And it was easier for me to release it in China because I was away from all the media and that type of thing. And when I did actually release the article, I was nervous because like we talked about 50% of people are going to be against you 50% of the people are going to be with you but to my surprise you know all the feedback that I got was positive you know everybody was like wow like in support of me and and you know people commented that they had similar situations and that type of thing and um you know the thing about it was I didn't release it. I didn't release a story for me. You know, I don't need people to know my whole world, my whole life, and that type of thing. But if it will help save someone else's life, then I'm gonna do it. And there could be more to come on this. I'm yeah. just gonna kind of leave it at that. Mm-hmm. There's uh, stay tuned, right. as stay, we say. Stay tuned. Stay yeah. t- if only I knew what was coming. Sitting there having that conversation in Brianna's kitchen. Keep doing your thing, Stewie. We can't wait to see what's next. The ESPN body issue is on newsstands now, where you can see the photos and interviews at ESPN.com. We also have a story on Syracuse.com. Now, my conversation with legendary sportscaster Bob Costas. So we are here with Bob Costas, the 2018 winner of the Ford C. Frick Award, a baseball Hall of Famer. Uh, Bob, if I had told a a young Bob Costas at Syracuse University back in the day, and I'd come from the future to tell you, you'd be a baseball Hall of Famer someday. What would your response have been then? I'm sure I would have thought it was some sort of practical joke because all I hoped for, along with all the other guys, mostly guys, a few women then, more now, but mostly guys then, many of whom are still my friends, all we hoped for was to someday break into the business, to have a place in the business, to be able to earn our living that way, to be around sports, to be around broadcasting, and to be good enough craftsmen to be respected, to uh, even dream about being in the Baseball Hall of Fame. My gosh, that was something I'd never even thought about. Bob, uh, you've mentioned that this is certainly the top award for you, and and you've won uh, dozens of Emmy Awards and Sportscasters of the Year and awards from Syracuse University as Mm -hmm. well. And it puts you in a unique fraternity, because not only are these broadcasters I'm sure you looked up to, but you've worked w- with several members of this fraternity that you now get to join, including Jack Buck, right, who was uh, you know there at KMX oh, yes. in, in one of your first jobs. Yeah, in fact, after I left Syracuse, having done the Syracuse Blazers for one season, my first job after that was at KMOX in St. Louis, big 50,000-watt powerhouse station, 
and I did the old Spirits of St. Louis of the ABA, and Jack Buck was the revered sports director of KMOX and had a hand in hiring me. So, yes, although I never truly worked alongside Jack, maybe filling in for a few innings on some Cardinal games, but he and I were friends, and we were associated for a long time, and uh, when the word came down of my election, I heard almost immediately from his son, Joe, and Joe's comment was, my dad would be so proud. And then within an hour of the announcement in December, uh, Ben Scully called me, Dick Enberg, only a few days before he suddenly passed away, called me and put it simply, he said, welcome to the club. If you're in a club that includes Jack Buck and Vin Scully and Dick Enberg and Red Barber and Mel Allen and Ernie Harwell, <laughs> that's a heck of a club to be a member of. Bob, you have come back to Cooperstown a number of times, of course, for the induction, and this year you're going to come back as a Hall of Famer, and you know we really anticipate what your speech is going to be like and everything. But you know what? What can you tell us about when you come back to Cooperstown? Because you know being here in Central New York and having the chance to go there, you know I can get in the car right now and be there in 45 minutes to an hour. It just seems like no matter what, you go back into time in that great town and celebrate a great game that, yeah, is going through some changes and maybe it's not America's pastime anymore, but there's something about when you see that welcome to Cooperstown sign that, that kind of brings you back, and that's what Hall of Fame weekend's all about. So what are your feelings when you go to Cooperstown? And certainly uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be enhanced a bit uh, this year when you go back for the induction. Yeah, this one will be different from all the others that preceded it and will follow it, but in some respects, it'll be the same. You get goosebumps. It's timeless. It's 2018. It could be 1958 uh, in terms of how it feels, the way the village itself feels, the way the history of the game is preserved. Uh, and the sense of fraternity among these Hall of Famers, you sense what it means to them, not just the new inductees, and there are a large number this year, six, but the very large number of Hall of Famers who come back year after year to be with their fellow Hall of Famers, to soak in the atmosphere at Cooperstown, to just sit around and swap old stories and talk baseball, to be around that atmosphere, even before I was uh, voted into the broadcaster's wing, to be around that atmosphere so often, you know, doing interviews and visiting with those guys is something I always look forward to. Bob, uh, to come back to your Syracuse days, I don't know if I've ever heard this from you, so I wanted to ask. You, you came to Syracuse, but was there a second choice? Was there a third choice? Is, is there an alternate universe where Bob Costas is an alum of, of a different school? Well, there were second, third, and fourth choices, and they were like second, third, and fourth behind Secretariat in the Belmont <laughs> in 1973. <laughs> Whatever was second was closer to eighth or ninth. Um, I, I applied to American University in Washington, D.C., which had a good uh, communications department. You have to remember at that time in the early 70s, what journalism school meant for the most part was print journalism. I was really part of the first generation that grew up with television, where television wasn't something new. Look what they invented. Oh, look, we got a television set. I don't remember a time when we didn't have a television set. So at a lot of universities, journalism just meant print. And radio, and especially television, were looked down on a little bit. But not at Syracuse. Syracuse was ahead of the curve with the Newhouse School, and anticipating the importance of broadcast media. So there were others. Northwestern 
certainly. Uh, University of Missouri was one. Um, so those were among the schools I applied to, but uh, Syracuse was always my number one choice. And as soon as the acceptance letter came, there was no chance that I was going anywhere else. Is there a lesson that you learned at your time at Syracuse that you apply to this day when, when you're doing a broadcast? Well, a couple of things. Um, and I first come across this in reading uh, Red Barber's memoir, a legendary voice of the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, the guy who broke Vin Scully into the business, Vin kind of learned at Red Barber's knee, the importance of preparation and how you don't, you don't prepare any harder for a World Series game than you do for a game on a Tuesday night in July if you're really a professional. You talk to the managers, you talk to the players, you find out if somebody isn't in the lineup, why he isn't, uh, is he injured, how serious is it. You do all the preparation you can possibly do. And as so often is the case, Vin Scully put it best, although he was quoting someone else in this case, he liked to quote the great actor Lawrence Olivier that the key to success was the humility to prepare and then the confidence to pull it off. Now, these days, there's so much more information available than there once was with the Internet and everything else that no human, even if you never slept for a week prior to a broadcast, you can't consume all the information that's out there. So now part of your job is to edit through it and decide what really is pertinent, what really is interesting, what really belongs in this broadcast. But I still take a look at a vast amount of material and then cull it down to what I think is going to be worthwhile. And then beyond that um, devotion to preparation, the idea that in addition to just getting the nuts and bolts right, a good broadcaster has, to some extent, you don't want to overwhelm the broadcast. It isn't about you. But you have to have your own style. Uh, you have to have something that, that seems distinctive to you but feels right, that isn't forced. And that comes when you are confident enough about the craft, about the nuts and bolts, that you're not going to make a mistake, that you're going to be able to connect A to B. When you get to that point and you aren't consumed with worry over that, that's when you can start to be yourself, let a little humor come in, let a little personality come in. And being around the other people who are interested in broadcasting, like-minded people of your own age or contemporaries at WAER and at the Newhouse School, they kind of had the same idea, and we, we sort of pushed each other, we critiqued each other, uh, we had a lot of laughs about it, um, and a great thing about Syracuse was that when you were a freshman, as early as your freshman year, you could be on WAER, and then later when they got the sophisticated television facilities, you could try your hand at that. So we got better by making our mistakes. We got a lot of our mistakes and our and our uh, immaturity out of our system before we were ever out of college. And you had the great fortune, Bob, of while you were here at Syracuse working at WSYR, both radio and television. You mentioned uh, your gig with the Syracuse Blazers as well, and, and you come yeah. into that and you're doing that job. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of stories from there, Bob, and maybe you can add one or two here, but. I've heard the Ogie Oglethorpe story, and frankly, mm -hmm. I never get tired of it. So for those that haven't heard the Ogie Oglethorpe story, would you mind uh, replaying for that uh, that for us a little bit? Well, for those young and old, because it still shows up from time to time on cable TV, 
those who remember the film Slapshot, I actually knew a lot of guys who were extras in the movie who had played in the Eastern Hockey League. And the screenplay was written by Nancy Dowd, whose brother Ned Dowd was a winger for the Johnstown Jets of the Eastern Hockey League, who still play in the Johnstown War Memorial. Um, and one of the characters in the movie um, is based on Bill Harpo Goldthorpe of the Syracuse Blazers. And uh, if I've got the story right, and I think I do, Bill, shockingly, had gotten into a little bit of trouble with the authorities <laughs> north of the border uh, because he liked to mix it up a little bit uh, after hours. Um, and a few people... Uh, came out of those scrapes the worse for wear, and usually it was Goldie who got the better of it. And Ron Ingram, who was the coach and general manager of the team, he had played briefly uh, in the NHL. Uh, Ron, in effect, um, signed some document that assured uh, the Canadian authorities that he would keep an eye on Goldie and that he would put Goldie's aggressive tendencies to a more productive use which would be to beat people to a pulp inside a hockey rink rather than in a back alley or in a bar. And so that character is for real. And believe it or not, I was not Goldie's favorite guy, at least not at the beginning, because I appeared more studious, and Goldie quickly sized me up as someone who was unlikely to be able to beat anybody up, except maybe the other announcer or the statistician. <laughs> so I'm reading the New York Times on the bus one day, we're riding to Johnstown or Lewiston, Maine or some such place, and he's in the seat behind me, and I'm reading the New York Times. And that in and of itself infuriated him. And so he reaches over my shoulder and he grabs the Times and he stands up in the aisle of the bus and rips it to shreds and lets it fall on the floor of the bus like New Year's Eve confetti. And now all the players are looking, craning their necks, and I guess they're awaiting a response from me. And I'm 21 years old, and like an idiot, I think I have to say something to save face. And I look at him and I say, Goldie, don't be jealous. I'll teach you to read. <laughs> and that was not the smartest thing I've ever done. Because he did not take kindly to that response. So he yanks me out of my seat, and he was so darn strong that with one hand, and I probably weighed about 130 then, he picks me up and he slams me against the wall of the moving bus. And he's able to hold me about six inches off the ground with one hand. He's got his hand like around uh, the, the collar of my shirt. And he reaches up into the luggage rack of the bus and pulls down a hacksaw that the players used to trim their sticks. And he puts the hacksaw underneath my chin. Now, I know, even in this moment of extreme anxiety, that he's really not intending to decapitate me. <laughs> but I also know, Brent, that he's not the kind of guy who would have taken into account all the possible dynamics of the situation. You know, what if the bus hits a pothole? What if it veers to avoid a deer on the road? <laughs> you know, then right. something might happen that he'd later regret. Right. So I remember saying, Goldie, I'm sure we can settle this amicably. And I think merely the word amicably made him angrier still. So he tightens his grip. And then a makeshift SWAT team consisting of the veteran players on the team sort of make their way from the front 
of the bus. There was a hierarchy. The veterans and the coaches sat in the front and the uh, younger players toward the back. And so they made their way back toward us. And they were trying to calm him down. It's like, Goldie, Goldie, put Bob down, put the hacksaw down, put Bob down. And then eventually he did. Uh, and I went back to my seat, and he went back to his, and nothing more was said. And then as the year went along, we sort of reached uh, an understanding. And then the story I just told you, I told to Jay Leno on The Tonight Show about 15, 20 years ago. And two or three days later, I get a phone call, and Goldie had tracked me down, and it was Goldie. And he was telling me how much he enjoyed hearing me tell the story on The Tonight Show and reminiscing about all the great times we had and telling me what a great guy I was and how happy he was for me and how much he'd love to get together and et cetera, et cetera. So all's well that ends well. And uh, all's well that ends well, and you were thankful uh, the bus driver didn't hit a pothole or had to slam oh on the gosh, brakes yes. or anything <laughs> of that note in that moment. What a great story. I always enjoy hearing that. And, and Bob, I, I wanted to close with this thought. You know, to go back, that's a great time from a great story from your time in Syracuse, hockey wise. When you were here at Syracuse, I mean, you look at Syracuse athletics now, and of course, what Jim Beheim's done with basketball and football has had its ups and downs, and but it's certainly a prominent Power Five program now. What were Syracuse sports like for you as a student? What were what are your vivid memories of going to games, and what kind of uh, programs they were at the time? Well, it was the end of the Ben Schwartzwalder era which had include had included glorious years with Jim Brown and Ernie Davis and Floyd Little. And they were still kind of a marginally top twenty team. They might have snuck into the top twenty a few of those years. But Ben still played that three yards in a cloud of dust type offense. And the games were played in the old Archbold Stadium, which I think at that time was the oldest stadium still in use on a regular basis for Division I college football. I think it was built just after uh, the turn of the 20th century. So I remember going to games and watching Syracuse play. Uh, they were only pretty good. The basketball team under Roy Danforth was good, but not yet great. And that was at a time when the NCAA field had 32 teams. And so it was still a big deal to go to the NIT. The NIT got a lot of really good teams. You could only take one team from a conference. So let's say you finish second in the ACC. You might be the third or fourth ranked team in the country, but you couldn't go to the NCAA, so you went to the NIT. And all the games of the NIT were at Madison Square Garden. So Syracuse went to the NIT a few times when I was an undergraduate there, and we would broadcast the games on WAER, which was an incredible thrill. And Syracuse did pretty well a few times, and there was a lot of excitement about it, and because a lot of alums are from the New York area and because it was only a four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour drive or whatever from Syracuse to, to the Madison Square Garden, a lot of students went to the games. Uh, I remember that really fondly. And Jim Beheim was Danforth's assistant. And then when Roy went to Tulane, Jim, of course, becomes the head coach in the mid-'70s and has been there ever since. And under Jim Beheim, Syracuse has become a marquee program. Bob, can't thank you enough for your time today. We are so thrilled for you up here in Syracuse. Congratulations on the Hall of Fame induction, and uh, we'll see you when you're up here in Cooperstown about a month from now. Brent, thanks very much. Well, it's summertime in central New York, and amongst the great traditions, the salt potatoes included, that I'm sure you're looking forward to, 
is a trip to the ballpark. Maybe it's to NBT Bank Stadium to see the Syracuse Chiefs, or up the road to Auburn to see the Double Days, or maybe down the road to Binghamton to see Tim Tebow. Oh yeah, and the Binghamton Rumble Ponies too. But there's a couple hidden gems in central New York that perhaps you didn't know about that can scratch that baseball itch. Have you heard of the New York Collegiate Baseball League? The NYCBL is celebrating its 40th season of sending collegiate players to the pros. Names like J.D. Martinez, Hunter Pence, Jason Mott, Dallas Braden, Clay Bellinger, Scott Cassidy, a Lemoyne grad, Tim Hudson, and John McDonald, just to name a few, have made it to the majors and at one point could have been right in your own backyard. Syracuse has not one, not two, but three teams in the New York Collegiate Baseball League. The Syracuse Salty Cats, the Syracuse Spartans, and the Onondaga Flames. Yes, they're college baseball players, but there's no pings to be heard here. This is a wooden bat baseball league. So maybe on a nice night this summer, when you're in the mood for baseball, check out a New York Collegiate Baseball League game with the Syracuse Salty Cats, the Syracuse Spartans, or the Onondaga Flames. Their website is nycbl.com. You can find a schedule of, where you can find a schedule where the Salty Cats, Spartans, and Flames play their games in places like OCC, Doubleday Field, and Hopkins Road. Take me out to the ball game. That's the Syracuse Sports Podcast for this week. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. Just subscribe to the Syracuse Sports Podcast, and we'll send you new episodes automatically when they're available. My thanks again to Bob Costas for joining us. My thanks to you for listening. I'm Brent Dax. We'll talk to you next time.